0: Welcome to New Books in Film on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Anthony Slide about his book, Magnificent Obsession, The Outrageous History of Film Buffs, Collectors, Scholars, and Fanatics, published in 2018 by the University Press of Mississippi. We likely all know people who are extreme fans of celebrities and movies, But Anthony's book tells the story of how the hobby began, as well as the people who spent their entire lives trying to compile their collections. Welcome, Anthony Slide.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, uh, we're talking about the book Magnificent Obsession, The Outrageous History of Film Buffs, Collectors, Scholars, and Fanatics. Uh, Obviously, the name says quite a bit, but what I found interesting is that you, uh, when you talk about film buffs, you've got a specific group in mind, and as we talk, hopefully we can describe that group in a lot of detail so that the possible listeners, so they can decide, they get a better understanding of what you write about. But before we do that, I always like to get a little bit of background of the people I talk to, uh, what... how much, what kind of writing have you done in the past? Where, what led you to be where you are in your career?
1: Okay, well, I go back quite a long way because I'm pretty old. Um, I started, I guess, having a professional involvement in, with film. Back in the late 1960s, I worked for a, an annual called the International Film Guide in London. And I also um, founded a quarterly periodical called The Silent Picture, devoted, as the title suggests, to silent film. Um, I published my first book, um, Early American Cinema, back in 1970. Since then, I've written a lot of other books, certainly 70 or more, and I've also edited more than 150 books. I used to edit the Filmmakers series for the Scarecrow Press. It's no longer published. Um, And that ran to 126 volumes. And also, I've also sort of... Um, in order to make some money because you don't make money from writing books. I've also served as associate archivist of the American Film Institute and the resident film historian of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences.
0: So you're, you've are you been in uh, California for a long time.
1: Um, I, I came to California initially in 1971. I had a scholarship with the American Film Institute and then I worked for the AFI back in Washington, D.C. until 1975. Then I came back Los Angeles where I've been ever since and in 1975 I started working for the Motion Picture Academy
0: obviously you're from the United Kingdom I'm assuming by your accent
1: I uh, was born in Birmingham England <laughs>
0: no. um, I used to live no, in Birmingham Alabama but I don't think it's the same <laughs>
1: no the accents different
0: <laughs> so okay um, as we say this book uh, magnificent obsession well obsession, that's I gotta slow down when I try to say that so I do it correctly uh, right at the beginning, you're, you've got not even an introduction. You've, you've labeled it warning. And one of the things you say in that initial point is that certain people aren't going to be happy with this book because of the, including some of the people who are who would be considered subjects. Uh, but one of the things I found interesting in that initial thing is you said that uh, the academics might not like this book because much of the information is not well-documented and you don't have texts to, you know, you don't have sources that you can use that would be considered academic. But yet you were pub- The book is being published by the University Press of Mississippi. So I'd love to know what led you to this publisher. Have you written for them before?
1: Yes, I have indeed. I mean, I can't remember how many books I've published through Mississippi. Um, I've I written what I would like to describe as definitive books on the history of the fan magazine on the History of Hollywood Extras. Uh, Mississippi also reprinted my encyclopedia of vaudeville. Um, And there must, oh yes, uh, about a year or so ago they published um, She Could Be Chaplin, which was the first biography of a silent comedian named Alice Howell, who is interesting because her um, her son-in-law was um, George Stevens, the director, and so her grandson is George Stevens, Jr., who founded the AFI and the Kennedy Center Honors. So I have quite an involvement with
0: Mississippi. Well, that's good. Because as I say, one of the things I've noticed in doing these podcasts, and I do interview people from more popular publishers, but also a lot of academic publishers, and it's great some of the material that the academic publishers are coming out with that – years and years ago obviously even if they were in existence they wouldn't be necessarily considering for publication and i think
1: you have to sorry to interrupt but i think you have to bear in mind there are some academic uh, uh, university presses like mississippi and kentucky who are also trade publishers so they're selling their books through bookstores Mm -hmm. rather like say a quote legitimate publisher whereas some university presses like the university of california press sells only through Amazon.com and directly. It doesn't offer the books through Barnes & Noble or whoever.
0: Right. Well, and I've inter- I've interviewed people from the University of Kentucky Press as well, which is great. <laughs> um, so obviously from the title and, and the background is that we're talking about film buffs, but let's talk a little bit as we start. What led you to decide that this was some a group of people that you wanted to write about?
1: Well, I've always tried to write about subjects that no one else has covered. I mean, I think in my entire career, for example, I was the first person to write about um, silent women film directors back in the 1970s. I was the first person to rediscover Alice Guy Blachet, the first woman um, filmmaker. Um, I'm I was the first. I'm the first person to write, you know, on many, many different subjects relating to cinema. So I'm always looking for something new. And I'd always thought about um, a volume on film buffs. I wasn't quite certain how I could handle it. I was also concerned about libel laws and what I could say. Um, So I I thought, well, maybe I could write a book uh, um, concentrating really on people who are no longer with us and also noting the difference between the old-time film buffs, the buffs of the 20th century, compared to the to the film buffs of the 21st century who rely on social media to get their message
0: across right because even in that like i say that's another group you specifically state would probably not be happy with this book because it doesn't describe them um there is obviously still film there are still film buffs but you're talking about a group that uh didn't you know, well, even no pre-computer, really. right? And even pre-computer, pre-obviously pre-internet. Yeah.
1: yeah, no, I mean, it, it does bother me in a way that people today don't understand what it was like back then to write about film. How hard it was. We didn't have turn uh, the classic movies. We didn't have DVDs. Um, we didn't have internet access to all types of information. We had to go to a library, and we had to research. We had to read early trade papers, early fan magazines that were not indexed. There was no keyword search. If we wanted to see a film, we had to go to a film archive uh, and view it. We, we couldn't sort of order it up on, on the internet or whatever. So it was a very different time. And, and and there were a lot of people back then who worked very hard and who were very good and who are totally forgotten today um, simply because their work has been superseded by others. I, w- I would actually mention one of the people in the book, DeWitt Bodine, who I would call a film star. He had actually been a screenwriter who wrote... Cat People, Curse of the Cat People, um, many other films for that, Val Luton. Um, and actually, in old age, he, he couldn't get work as a writer and screenwriter anymore. So he thought maybe he could write um, career articles for films in review magazine and people would get to know his name again. So he started writing career articles, which were very good in their day, very well researched. But now, of course, you can go to IMDb and find most of the information be included in those articles, so he's forgotten, and that to me is unfair.
0: Yeah, even in your introduction, you talk about a couple of pe- a number of people in your introduction just by names, and some of them obviously made it into the the digital age because there's at least one person I forget his name off the top of my head who uh, was well known at, at, at in the IMDb dot at IMDb.com for some of the information he okay. provided and and how well, it was he was fake, <laughs> right? He wasn't always uh, appreciated. Well.
1: Well, quite frankly, I mean, not to criticize the IMDb, which is very useful, but you read reviews on the IMDb, and it's very obvious whoever wrote the review hasn't seen the films, um, and this doesn't seem to bother anybody, and it, that to me it is deeply disturbing to me.
0: And there's interesting these.
1: I'm deeply <laughs> disturbed very easily,
0: I guess. Well, crowdsourced movie reviews—you've uh, got to wonder sometimes. In fact, there was an article I read today that just came in the news. and This is uh, November, or excuse me, October fourth, that we're recording. It uh, supposedly Rotten Tomatoes, which is one of the crowdsourcing um, uh, um, movie databases, uh, review databases, seems to have found that it had Russian trolls. Putting negative reviews of movies. So, uh, once again, we 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 see the, the the possible issues related to social media. Yes,
1: uh, I mean I I don't know if, if this is sort of relevant or not, but um, actually last week I was interviewed by Alt Film Guide, um, which is an internet site, and they had sent me questions and I had sent them answers, and they were all they were actually putting it up on their site, and they suddenly. The 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 interview was gone. It disappeared, and then they went to their their inbox and they found that my emails had also gone. So that were also gone. So they called me and said, "Can can you send us the emails again?" And I said, "Sure." And I went to my <laughs> inbox, and they were gone from my inbox as well. So it was like there was a troll out there, maybe a sort of crazed film buff. It got into the system and deleted every reference to the interview. It was quite amazing. So it does happen.
0: Right. So... When we talk about, like we've said already, that the the film buffs we're talking about are are folks that uh, were interested in older movies, the movies in the past Mm -hmm. that, as you've pointed out, were much more difficult to, uh, you know, to follow and to study wasn't the the easiest thing in the world to do. In fact, it was almost impossible unless you were willing to spend a good part of your Mm -hmm. free time, however much that might be, in order to really – Take advantage of being that kind of a film buff. Can you give me a typical example of a film buff that we're talking about here? What kind of things might they have been doing as far as to, to support their their um, desire to uh, to follow film?
1: Well, obviously, a film buff has to make a living, and so that but they're probably going to work in a fairly menial occupation. You do find some film buffs are so desperate to be associated with the film industry that they'll, they'll go and work, say for Universal, but in the mail room or, or, or in the film shipping department or whatever, um, because that gives them a link to film somehow. It makes them feel they're part of the, of the studio system or whatever. Um, I, I, most film buffs, uh, you know, it's a hobby and they're, they're going to spend all their spare time on it. They're going to... Many of them created their own little film societies where they'd have a 16 millimeter projector They'd, they'd rent or borrow 60 millimeter prints of classic films and they'd show them at home to, to friends. Um, this is fairly routine, particularly in New York. Um, they would go to libraries such as the New York Public Library, uh, Lincoln Center, or the, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Margaret Herrick Library uh, in Beverly Hills, uh, and, and they'd spend all their available time doing research. And of course it was hard for them because they were working during the day and generally the libraries were not open at night. So it, it wasn't that easy to be a film buff back then.
0: And did they from your experience in in um researching the film buffs you had some I would assume that followed specific actors and actresses and that that they they would tend to to focus their attention that way.
1: Um yes that's true. I mean uh, yeah. And it's, it and I might that it's generally limited to members of the acting profession. Somebody asked me, are film buffs interested in um, behind the camera talent? And I would say no. Uh, I think the only exception would be director D W Griffith. There are a number of film buffs who are totally obsessive about D W Griffith. In fact, um somebody once observed to me that there must be something about Griffith that makes people crazy. <laughs> All of these people who write about Griffith, quite frankly, are insane. Um, and they know I've told them they're this, and they're quite happy to accept that uh, label. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your question. Oh, I but was anyway. talking
0: about the 10... Most people, the film buffs were t- often are following specific actors and actresses. Oh, yes,
1: yes. Um, um, yes and no. I mean, you find... I don't know why this certain actresses seem to appeal, say, to gay film buffs. gay fancies for some reason. She seems to have a lot of gay appeal. If they're interested in silent films, they're probably more interested in somebody like Gloria Swanson, who, ha- who is glamorous or Pola negri, rather than, say, somebody who is uh, more ethereal, if, and perhaps a better actress like Lillian Gish. Um, but then there are many film buffs who are interested in all films, so long as they're old, <laughs> and also all films that are obscure. The more obscure they are, the harder they are to see, the more exciting it is to suddenly have access uh, to
0: one of them. You, you talk about that quite a bit, is that the, um, some films are even the reason they're still known at all if they're known is because of some of the things some of the activities of a film buff who did everything they could to continue to uh, keep that film known and and of course, as you say nowadays that's pretty easy to do even with some older yeah. films that are now available for viewing from home. but uh, some of these other folks that was the only way that uh, they could keep the information out there.
1: Yeah. I mean and particularly people in New York were lucky because William K. Everson, who might be called the Dean of Film Buster, although he really is a film historian, um, he was a he was a Britisher who lived in in New York from the nineteen fifties onwards and he ran what was called the Theodore Huff Memorial Film Society, at which on a weekly basis he screened very rare films from a huge sixteen millimeter film collection that he owned. And and he didn't show popular classic films. He showed obscure films. He, he specialised in obscure films. He thought those were important to introduce to audiences. And so film buffs in New York would always gather at um, the Theodore Huff Memorial Film Society. They might also be found, of course, at the Museum of Modern Art, which had uh, had daily filmings in its auditorium. Uh, and um, as I mentioned in the book, the, 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 the buffs of the Museum of Modern Art had their designated seats and God help anybody who sat in one of in a seats that belonged to a film bus and you would have the same number of film bus sitting in the front row for every performance.
0: So obviously we, we know from the history of film that, uh, it started off very slowly or, or, you know, lightly. It wasn't meant to be anything more than, than brief entertainment. Mm-hmm. And then over time, as the film industry began to grow, it became, a, as I just used the word, industry—a true industry where uh, it became a normal part of life, almost for for the average moviegoer. You know, especially going into, sil- you know, uh, silent into the early talking well, movies. I
1: mean, back back say in the twenties, thirties, and forties, people went to the movies on a weekly basis. Um, uh, the the movie theaters in a specific town. Would show a certain studios' movies. You'd have Hammer movies showing at one theater, MGM movies showing at another theater, and it, it was a sort of ritual. The entire family would go to the movie, and then the next day, you know, at the, if people were working in an office, they might gather around the coffee machine and, and sort of just talk about the movie they'd seen last night. It was a it was an it was an integral part of life, really.
0: And it really wasn't just a movie. It was, a full, it was an evening. It was yes. meant to include more than, than just uh, a single movie moth. And it
1: well, be, usually you get a double feature, you get a newsreel, you get a short subject and a cartoon.
0: So when do we first, when, in, your, in your research, when do we, can, can we identify when the first film buffs started to uh, appear?
1: Well, it's very hard to, to identify simply because, of course, film buffs tend to be anonymous. But I did discover one sort of teenage boy in the early 1910s who would keep a record of every film he saw. It would indicate where he saw it, um, who the star was, the studio that made it. And that's really sort of something that film does routinely do, keep lists. Mm -hmm. So he was the earliest person we know, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his name offhand. Um, uh, who kept a list of what films he saw.
0: Because as you point out, I mean, one of the things that I see in your descriptions is having a record of some sort is incredibly important. It's not just a matter of saying you've seen a lot of films, being able to show your interest in a variety of ways, whether it's lists or other things like that.
1: It's a matter of ticking off a film. I've seen it. So I never need to see it again. And the more films you can pick off, um, the, the, the better a film buff you are. And of yeah. course, I guess the film buffs hope one day they'll see all films, which will never happen.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. sure that would be their desire. You, you do mention that about uh, not only do they keep track of how many films they've seen, but the one example you gave is somebody who also kept track of how much it cost him to see all the films. So yes,
1: I mean, and you've even got, uh, there was a, a German documentary made a few years ago about um, film buffs, and they had one woman there who kept the, the ticket stub for each film she saw, and, it, and the ticket stub had to be ripped by the attendant a certain way it had to be she wanted exactly half of the ticket stub and she would have aesthetics if, if the ticket stub was damaged in some way so i mean I, that, that that is a typical film buff
0: <laughs> so i think the word obsessive probably appears obsessive, in just about yes. any film buff buff description yes <laughs> now obviously the, the 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 initial film buffs that's obviously what they had to you know what they built around but then we start to see some other examples, and that's where they want to actually interact with pe- with with the film stars, uh, yeah. the, the concept of clubs and mail. Um, yeah. And obviously, as, as as you pointed out in the book, this is not always necessarily as uh, appreciated by the actual actors and, and other people that were in contact with these folks.
1: No, I mean— uh, starting in the 1920s and really reaching its zenith in the 1930s you have fan clubs established and the studios like to keep control of these fan clubs because they like to know how much fan mail a star might get the more fan mail a star get got the more the studio would think wow that star's worth more money that that star's bigger than another star so it was important to keep a record really um, at the same time you know there's a sort of line between film buffs and Fans, because fans are not quite as obsessive as, as film buffs. It's hard to differentiate, right? and I have problems with this. Um, but you do find that the fans really are desperate to meet um, their idols in some way, um, and studios tend to keep, used to keep stars well away from the public because it would it would destroy the image if you have somebody. Um, promoted as a, as a major glamorous star, you don't want them to be seen drinking in a coffee shop where any fan could come up to them. They must be isolated from the fans in some way. Um, I mean, I tell the story in the book, there was one man uh, who had who had seen an early Sylvia Sidney film uh, back in the, I think, 1960s. And he happened to, to see Sylvia Sidney. She came into a shop where he worked and he told her that that he had seen her film last night, and she looked at him and said, "You're fucking mad." <laughs> and I'm sure her response was probably <laughs> similar to many o- o- other stars, current or past, having the same uh, um, 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 meeting or whatever.
0: Yeah, Sylvia Sidney is an interesting example because she- well, Sylvia
1: Sidney really hated. Me. I have I have seen Sylvia Sidney in action, and she certainly could be very, very volatile and very vitriolic if she wanted to be.
0: And interestingly, is one of the folk, one of the people you can point back f- from old years and years ago into more modern times. I mean, she acted quite late in, into her career, so that that yes,
1: yes, and I, I I imagine like many stars, she really needed to keep working. She needed the money. Nothing
0: so wrong with. Her. I'm sorry.
1: I just had nothing wrong with that, right?
0: It? And then you you do talk about uh, then then the another step or another stage that's important, and you mentioned it briefly before is the idea of being able to actually see the films. Like I say, nowadays, I don't think anybody uh, who's under maybe fifty would understand the concept. That over, you know, anybody under fifty probably doesn't understand the concept that seeing these films especially the more obscure ones, was almost virtually impossible yeah. unless you did something yourself to find it or, or as you pointed out before, borrow it or in some way, shape, or form, get the film.
1: Yeah, I mean, films, obviously, old films were not shown on television on a regular basis. Um, there was no of the classic movies. So the only way really to see an old film was to acquire a 16 millimeter print of it. There was no there was no DVD. There were no DVDs, no VHS tapes back then. So um, th- th- there were publications in which film buffs could buy and sell 16 millimeter prints uh, uh, of old films. And you would have collectors sometimes with huge hundreds, thousands of 16 millimeter prints, and they would have screenings in their homes. They would set up a 16 millimeter projector. They would invite friends to see it. If you were working, say, on a, on a book project. You you would ask around. Is there a collector who has a print of this? I'm desperate to see it. And if they did, if and if you were lucky, they might invite you over to see it one evening. And that's the only way you could really see films, unless you went to a film archive. But film archives are only a limited number. George Eastman House in Rochester, New York; Museum of Modern Art in New York; Library of Congress in Washington, D.C.; and UCLA Film and Television Archive here in Los Angeles. And also, you might have issues that some of these archives, actually, museum art—I don't know if they do today—but they used to charge money to, to see films from their collection. So it, it could be quite an expensive proposition.
0: So, as we've seen, as we've been talking about, we've got people who just wanted to see as many movies as possible and wanted to be able to say and keep track of the movies they saw and then the people who wanted to begin to interact so to speak Uh, when does the film buff become when does collecting become important to a film buff and what kind of material would they likely want to collect
1: I think film buffs always tend to like visual material so they want lobby cards, posters still photographs, they're not really interested in Early documents. To me, as a film historian, I'd much rather see a document or a letter with great content. I don't really care about a lobby card. But film buffs want lobby cards. They want to collect the lobby cards, they want to frame them, put them on the wall. Um, that's what they want. And, and, and you, you could offer somebody, say, a, a, a lobby card of um, D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. Or for the same price, you could offer a collector a signed a, a letter from D. W. Griffith. They'd rather have the lobby card.
0: Well, would they? Would they like a lobby card signed by D. W. Griffith?
1: Well, Dave, that would be that would be very desirable. Yes, yeah. Right. But that's not
0: likely to happen. Yeah, true. Uh, but then the other things is, is we start to see uh, our publications magazines that are specifically devoted i'm assuming there were such publications you know that were out there sort of on a popular level but the film industry ends up creating a whole an industry by a publishing industry all by itself just for film
1: well you you have the fan magazines of course but you know as the title suggests there's fans rather than buffs and and it's interesting of course that as the film buffs are not interested in current fan magazines. They want old fan magazines. So you'll have a film buff in the 1960s. He doesn't want a film buff. He doesn't want a fan magazine published in the 1960s. He wants the 1930s version of that fan magazine because it deals with the films and the stars that he's interested in. Um, and then, of course, you, you basically you get a publication, Film Review, which began in 1950, as a monthly publication. And it was a very interesting um, periodical because it catered both to film buffs and to to what I would call film scholars. Um, certainly, in the first ten years of Films Review it had some articles by major, major directors, um, you know, people like Carl Theodor Dreyer, Car- uh, King Reed or whoever, writing articles about their work. Um, and then it became a magazine with career articles, you would have essays on a person's career, followed by a very detailed filmography. And it was really, you know, in the days prior to IMDB, this was the only way to find out the entire film record of, of, of an actor or actress. And, and and also what really sort of labeled Films in Review as a film buff publication, it had a letters section, which was several pages long, at the end of here, the readers could write in correcting what somebody had said, disagreeing with what another film buff had said, sort of promoting a particular style or a particular film. So in my opinion, Film Review was the ultimate film buff publication.
0: Yeah, you even mentioned early in the book that to a film buff, the the, the, the holy grail is being able to make a correction of an error yeah. that they found yeah. in print.
1: Film buffs love to catch, believe me, I know as a writer, film buffs love to catch you
0: out. (laughs) (laughs) So, obviously then, um, and and you mentioned it a couple places in the book, obviously regularly is the issues of, you know, the whole issue of a film buff and libraries, where, and as somebody who is a librarian and worked in libraries for much of my career, um, the con- including big libraries, the concept of people who decide that, who want to decide, okay, where is it better? Where is this particular item better uh, in a library, where maybe no one will see it or no one cares about it, or with my collection?
1: I mean that 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 is very true, and it yeah uh, you know, I mean it it was a serious issue many years ago when libraries didn't really have much security. That uh, particularly here in Los Angeles, the the Motion Picture Academy Library. Um, there was there was there was no search of materials or backpacks or whatever when you left the library. So uh, a film bus were routinely stealing still photographs or um, clippings or whatever. Um, uh, nowadays, of course, libraries tend to sort of be very security conscious, and and and, and you you're practically strip searched before you're allowed to leave. Uh, and that, sadly, is the way it has to be. I have come across countless film buffs, quite frankly, who have proudly shown me material they have stolen, saying it's far better in my collection. I appreciate it more than that library, because that library just keeps it in a file folder and nobody sees it, and, or that it's kept in a box on a shelf or whatever.
0: I, I worked at the uh, Cleveland Public Library, which is a very large library and and with a pretty decent research section, although not specifically film related. And over the years, I know we had issues, issues with that whole thing, not specifically, like I say, film related, but with other with other uh, fans and other of other things where and not just fans, people who are obviously. Thinking of the financial aspect of it oh. of things.
1: Well, a lot of times, you, of course, you know, you do get people who say, "I can't afford twenty five cents to make a photocopy," so it's easier just to steal it. And and and, and beware of film buffs with razor blades. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be there, razor blading out articles from fan magazines um, in a corner, uh, unbeknownst to the librarian.
0: So, well, speaking of of, of value. The kind of thing that a film buff is going for isn't necessarily, or or is interested in, is not something that has a monetary, a particularly particular monetary value, right?
1: Well, no, I would disagree with that because obviously these days lobby cards and posters have tremendous financial value. so, yes, they are interested in, in in material with monetary values.
0: But they're not necessarily interested in selling it to try to make money.
1: Oh, I see what you mean. No, no. I mean, once right. they own it, they definitely don't want to sell it. it it's theirs. And it, till the day they die, they want it to be in their collection.
0: Yeah, you gave, um, exa- you gave some examples of people who clearly overspent for things, but... They wanted it so badly. And unfortunately, that is, I think any fandom, depending on what it is, there are people who have that obsessiveness, we we'll go back to yeah, that I word, mean, that they have to always, have something.
1: You always find at auctions on eBay that there's two people want the same item, and it just becomes foolish and silly that neither of is willing to give way. They're both determined to own something. Uh, and, and so they'll, they'll bid way beyond the value of that, of that item. Desperation.
0: So, did some of the did the, some of the film buffs we were t- we've been talking about? Did they actually reach out to others? I mean, I know obviously you talked about the club. Was it more of a matter that they just wanted to have a club, and even if they were the only member, or were they actually trying to reach out to other people who might share their interest?
1: No, I, I think they did reach out to other people. I mean, one does get the impression that many film buffs were quite lonely people, and so really the only social interaction they had. Was, was gathering uh, to stay at someone's house to see a 16-millimeter film. Um, so actually, uh, a, a lot of people have pointed out to me that while my book is very funny, it's also very sad, because uh, these films thus lead sad lives, really. And
0: yeah, in fact, you mentioned a few of them who... Uh, or committed uh, suicide, of course. Right, that, uh, and, and you, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's just the concept of getting... So obsessed, or so that, that that's that's their entire life, and when either there's a revelation of some sort, or whether something happens that suddenly they lose whatever value that had, and then that, that's pretty unfortunate.
1: Well, people also tend to they 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 set their their, their idols um, up to worship, and they don't want someone to, to knock that idol down for any reason. And sometimes it be, it can be quite silly. I mean, I, I remember some years ago, uh, Raymond Burr, who played Perry Mason. Everybody knew he was gay. It was no big deal. It certainly was no big deal for Raymond Burr. Um, but this one woman wrote a book about him, and she refused to accept that her, her star was gay. How could he possibly be gay? Um, and so she was sort of outraged when when a book came out talking about his gay life, um, and that's ridiculous. I mean, you know, you accept people for who they are. You shouldn't have to have to worry about them in any way, shape, or form.
0: So obviously, many of the people you you've researched or, or learned about. Lived their lives and their entire lives in obscu- pretty much in obscurity. Although, luckily, you were able to find out more about them, so not totally obscure. Are there people who are there specific people who you think are particularly interesting? That you, and I know you write about them, so I'm not asking just as I wonder who it is. But people who you think are particularly well known or were particularly famous in some way for their their work as film buffs.
1: Well, I, I think the people I would single out are the people who who became professionals, who made a living in a way from being a film buff. Although I don't like to label them as such. Now, Leonard Maltin is the perfect example. Leonard, I've known Leonard since he and I were teenagers, and he has done very well for himself. He's a very intelligent man, very possible. Um and he was a film buff really was back in back when he was fourteen years old. But he. he but he's built a career for himself uh, as a writer, as a television personality, as the creator of the the movie TV Guide. So, you know, he's the perfect example of, of a really good film buff who turned out well. Um, William K. Edison, another example, uh, he he was the person who once said it takes 30 years for a film buff to become a film historian. I don't agree with that. But, but he might have called himself a film buff, but certainly... In old age, he was venerated as a major film historian and film scholar. So there are two examples.
0: The one person I wanted to ask specifically about, because I found he's the only one who got an entire chapter basically just about him, and that's Joe Franklin. Who was Joe Franklin?
1: Oh, I'm. You live in New York and you never heard of Joe Franklin. I, I don't live in um, New York. <laughs> but, you know. Okay, all right. Well, Joe Franklin. Um,
0: I do actually know who he is. Okay. But I wanted to... okay.
1: Joe, Joe Franklin was a sort of, uh, I mean, a New York phenomenon. He was—he had his own radio show and his old television show where he was marketing nostalgia. And, I mean, the show was pretty awful. Uh, and that was why it was so appealing to people because Joe really never seemed to know what he was talking about. <laughs> But he also had, and he had this huge collection of, of, of memorabilia, uh, and he would just about have anybody on the show. He was like, I remember um, his son once was talking to me, saying, "Tony, you should come on the show." And I said, "I don't want to." He said, "Come on, just give Dad a call. He'll have you on the show." And I thought, "I don't want to be on his show." <laughs> but, but but I think mean, Joe, in a way, was an amazing guy because yet again he marketed nostalgia. He 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 marketed himself as a film buff, and people liked him. I mean, there was nothing nasty or unpleasant about Joe Francis. He was just fun.
0: So later in the book, and this is something where I know, like we've been talking about a lot of the kid, you know, the the, the humor that you have in the book uh, for good reason. But then there was some issues that I wanted to bring up, and that's the, the phrase that, unfortunately, it's a term we know way too much even nowadays, and that's the term of, you know, those are the stalkers. And yeah. that's where the obsessiveness, unfortunately, can get in the way. And I think one of the interesting things that comes out of the book is that stalkers weren't necessarily – it's not a modern thing. It is something that, it, that has always been an issue or a long been an issue even in, in, in older film industry people.
1: Yes, I mean, I mentioned B.B. Daniels, who was a victim of stalking around 1930, and she had to go to court to defend herself against this, this guy. Uh, and uh, obviously today's stalkers are dangerous, largely because they tend to have guns, whereas at least for some reason they didn't seem to walk around with guns back in the old days. They just simply made a nuisance of themselves. Um, and it, and it's actually surprising. Um, I was talking to a guy who used to work at Larry Eman's bookstore in Hollywood, I didn't know this when I wrote the book, but Teresa Saldana used to come into the into the bookstore, on occasion she would actually buy still photographs of herself because she didn't have them. And she actually said, "If if this guy gave his name ever comes into the store, he's stalking me. So please don't sell him any photographs of me." So I, I was sort of amazed with this
0: anyway yeah but uh as i say it, you know for all we talk about it now of course of course the other thing nowadays is that it's much easier for people to do their stalking because so much information's out there available about people and so yeah, you know, you, it's you one thing pop- it's one thing to be able to read a, a, a magazine to learn a little bit more about somebody and then maybe try to do your uh, to, to 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 do an investigation to find somebody unfortunately nowadays it's actually pretty easy to do Yeah, and you know,
1: addresses are relatively easily available on the internet. Quite frankly, Um, uh, back in the old days, the stalkers would generally hang out outside the studio gates, hoping you know to accost an actor or an actress when they uh, came or went. But you had studio guards who would protect the people and make certain they weren't approached or accosted in any way.
0: So, in discussing, you know, obviously you have. In this group of people, as you've already pointed out, the reason why you're writing about them in some ways was is, is because they haven't been written about before, and, and they are an interesting part of you know secondary part of the film industry. Um, where where do you feel like that the the, the traditional film uh, film buff that we've been talking about? Where does that period end? Where is the the last of them?
1: Well, I use the cutoff basically, as the end of the um, 20th century. Um, but obviously, uh, you know, you do find the old old star film buffs through into the, to this century. Um, and occasionally, you'll meet an elderly person who is a genuine film buff, a genuinely nice person, um, who doesn't do social media. Usually, I mean, usually if you really meet an old-time film buff, they, they they don't have a computer. They don't have email. Um, that really sort of labels them as a genuine film buff that I would admire. The film buffs I don't admire are the ones who have internet access.
0: Yeah, this, yeah I can see how the – because that's where, like you've been talking – you've talked – you mentioned it more than once in the book about wanting to avoid libel laws because uh, – it can be interesting when you talk about somebody who they decide that they don't like the way you're talking about them or, or they, they, they consider it to be uh, insult or worse, libel.
1: Well, the, the problem is you can't uh, – I mean I, I, I don't do social media. I don't do Facebook or Twitter. But I have been shown um, postings about me on Facebook, which are, which are not just offensive, but truly libelous. But what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Although, actually, in one particular instance, Facebook did take it down. I didn't ask them to, but somebody else did. So, yeah, no, I think it is an issue. It's, it, it, you know, you think of it as an issue affecting sort of major celebrities, and not non-entities not like me, but it affects everybody, really.
0: Well, that's why there's. Been I mean, all- it,
1: can be, it can be hurtful. It, I, if you're a professional like me, it, it doesn't really matter because you should be prepared for it. But if you're, if you're not a professional, if you're just an average man or woman... You don't want suddenly the hurt and pain of somebody posting something abusive about you on Facebook. This is a whole, you know, modern issue,
0: really. Right. The, I think uh, it is one of those things where, um, un- unfortunately, social media, the, the 21st century social media has made it very easy. And there's a lot to be said for, you know, when you can be in t- virtually 100% anonymous and not looking at the person face to face, it's much easier to say pretty much anything you want. but. yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate, to, but I think one of the things that, uh, the, that your book shows is that it's tendencies where, you know, there are people who are like that. Some of them are harmless and some of them not so much, but, uh, you give them the ability to reach out like that <laughs> and it yeah. makes things a little bit easier for them to act that way. Absolutely. Well, as I say, I, I've, I I always like interviewing authors when they – I mean, I can, I've interviewed a lot of authors about individuals, whether they be directors or actors, specific movies, specific type of movies. But I think sometimes the most interesting books I like are the ones that give this kind of information about ancillary aspects related to the film industry and film and that uh, present a new way of looking at uh, – at something that, especially with older film, that uh, most people don't know about. So I really have to tell you how much I enjoyed your book and that I hope people will reach out for it because they think they will find uh, a wealth of stories and also interesting information and and that they can uh, learn more about uh, this this interesting group and fascinating group of people.
1: Well, thank you very much. I I enjoyed writing and researching it. It was a way it was. A matter for me of going back in time, pulling old journals out, uh, looking at interviews I'd done, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. So it was like an exploration
0: for me. Do you have any other writing projects going on right now? Um,
1: Not really at the moment. I'm getting a little old and kind as I get older, I have problems remembering words. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sure most people have this issue but um, so, I'm sure something else will come along and you, you're, this is not the end of Anthony's slide you'll be hearing from him again.
0: Okay. well thank you for joining me I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, good luck with the book
1: well thank you so much I enjoyed it
0: as well I hope you enjoyed the interview Anthony's book adds important information about the so called golden age of Hollywood this is Joel Cherney and we will be back soon with more New Books in Film on the New Books Network.